The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Today we turn in the Gospel of Luke to chapter 11. I read a passage that is perhaps somewhat lesser known than other things in the ministry of Jesus, perhaps one that raises some questions in your mind. I hope perhaps we can speak to those. Listen as I read God's Word, Luke 11, in our continuing study of this Gospel, verses 14 through 26. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. May God bless His Word. May it be His Spirit that interprets it and illumines it as we consider it now. In the summer of 1858, delegates met at the Illinois State House for what was then a state procedure. It's changed today. Their task was to select Abraham Lincoln as the Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate. It was on that occasion, not at a time later when he was president, that the tall and gangly lawyer from Springfield, Illinois, stood up with his uncombed hair and no beard yet on his face, and he delivered one of the finest speeches Lincoln gave before he became president. 
He spoke about the civil strife of our nation at that time that threatened to tear us in two. And a famous line or theme of his speech was this. Lincoln said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently while it is half slave and half free. Well, that imagery made that speech a riveting one that history remembers quite well. And there probably are people who think that Lincoln's figure of speech about the divided house was something original. Readers of the New Testament gospel know it wasn't, that he drew it, of course, from the gospel and from Jesus, who first used this as we heard the same image here in Luke eleven seventeen, when Jesus said, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household cannot stand. This almost becomes one of those New Testament proverbs. The divided house that Jesus was referring to was not America, and the slavery he referred to was not racial slavery in the United States. He was, however, referring to the divided house of humanity and the very real slavery of millions of people who are under the dominion of the power set against God that we call Satan. And there was, he knew, as he said that, a work of liberation needed that would take all the power of God to break the shackles of that kind of slavery. Now, when we speak directly about Satan as the enemy of our souls and demons as fallen angels who serve him, I am very aware that my voice is reaching people who do not believe in this. Both in this room and as the radio broadcast goes forth, I'm sure hundreds of people hear this and only half treat with seriousness in their mind the fact that there is a real personal face of evil, Satan, and that he has demonic servants who oppress and can even dominate the lives of human beings. I say to someone who does not believe in the existence of real evil, first of all, I pity you. You know so much less than you think you know about the real universe. There probably isn't much that I can say that is going to change your mind. But I think about you as being like some of the Amish horses I see alongside the road pulling buggies. Not all of them have these, but you know what I mean when a horse has blinders beside his eyes as part of the equipage that he wears. Not much of a knowledgeable person about horses, but it's pretty easy to understand why you would put those on a horse. You want the horse not to be distracted by things it doesn't need to know. It doesn't need to know what's happening over this way or over this way. It needs to know what's happening this way and not be distracted. And that's why you put the blinders on, I assume. Well, there are hundreds and millions of people who go through life with blinders on about spiritual reality. They have no idea that there are powers and forces controlling things in the realm of humanity that are unseen but are absolutely real. And so they go forward with their tunnel vision, 
looking at materialism and the physical world and relationships here and now, and that's all they ever know. I feel sorry for them. As a matter of fact, when we study Luke's gospel in chapter 4, we saw quite a few weeks ago Jesus confronting a demonic spirit who shouted at him, I know who you are, Jesus, Holy One of God. You see right there, a demon, a fallen spirit, demonstrated that it was smarter than a lot of human beings in understanding the full dimensions of reality in this universe. Fallen spirits have a clearer grasp on the full-orbed universal reality of who God is, and they fear Him in a proper way. And millions of people who are influenced by such spirits go through life laughing at the whole idea, putting down the idea that there could be unseen reality governing them or influencing them. Well, today our theme is stated this way. We would hear Jesus describing all of humanity as divided into one of two realms. Either your life is one that has been transformed by God into a habitation for the indwelling of Christ, or you are like an empty house in some urban ghetto with boarded up doors and broken windows standing there empty and vacant for any vagrant who would come along to move in and make it his encampment, a place from which to do evil. You're one house, one domicile, or the other. Now first I want to consider verse 14 that states the miracle that happened here. It's very simple, very short, so much so that you could just sort of glide right past it. And under that, as we see this miracle, what we are seeing is a, a loosened tongue alongside blasphemous tongues. The miracle's quick. It's an easy one. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute, and when the demon left, the man who was mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. Here is somehow a demon characterized by a lack of speech, taking possession of a man and thus rendering that man unable to speak. Who knows for how long? They were not told. This is the latest in a long series of conflict between Jesus and demonic spirits. It's all over this gospel and the other gospels. We've seen a number of them. We've seen a young boy convulsed by demonic spirits so that he couldn't be controlled. We've seen spirits, multiple spirits in one man who, when they departed, were able to panic an entire herd of animals so that they went panic-driven into the sea. And now we see a man's power of speech taken away. Imagine being someone who couldn't audibly pray. Someone who couldn't say, I love you. Someone who couldn't even express simple wishes but had to point or use hand signals or something like that. I watched a a film briefly just the other day about a woman who was a deaf mute, as we say, She could speak some words, but her speech was quite limited by her deafness, and she mostly used sign language. And I was thinking about, what would it be like to be deaf? What would it be like to be unable to speak? I certainly would be out of a job, that's for sure. I can tell you that. And not to make light of it, because it's certainly no light thing. 
I believe Jesus saw the, the, the condition of this man as being symptomatic of what Satan tries to achieve with all of us. He wants to shut off our communication with God. He wants to break down our effectual communication with other people in the world. If he can isolate us, if he can make that God-given gift of communication no longer effective, then he's gone a long way, perhaps, from defacing the image of God in us. For certainly the ability to communicate is one of the things that, that describes that image of God that he gave to us. Now, we believe that when we become reborn believers in Jesus Christ, trusting him as Lord, we have a new nature. God's image is awakened in us in different ways. And I would say that it's, it's very right to say that one of those ways is that our vocal cords suddenly are able to partake of their highest intended purpose. We begin to praise God in new ways, speak to God, lift him up, own who he is, describe who he is, and speak our thanksgiving and praise. David in the 51st Psalm said, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. I chose Wesley's hymn this morning to, to voice this, the idea of a loosened tongue speaking the praise of God is a greatly appealing one. Someone who could not speak of him before, now speaking freely and openly of his greatness. Psalm 40 has that line that says, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to my God. So that is a great thing. What, what happened to this one man when the demon departed that had made him mute? But now I'd have you look at the other tongues that are participating in this text. They're not named. We don't know if these are scribes and Pharisees who were you know, quite often the enemies of Jesus. It just says some of them in the crowd. They're not described. Some of them use their tongues for a different purpose, not to praise Christ at all. In fact, what they did immediately was to blaspheme. And they looked at Jesus and said, by what power does he do these things? Why, he drives out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Now, there's a good name for you. You know, the mothers like creative names these days for babies, but I haven't heard anybody come up with Beelzebub to name their child. I trust I'm never going to have to baptize a Beelzebub. If anyone knew what it meant, they wouldn't use it. This is actually the name of a Canaanite idol who was perversely worshipped as someone with powers over the demonic realm. Uh, given a number of different thoughts or, or meanings, uh, some would say uh, that, that a name, Beelzebub, had a meaning of the Lord of the Flies. Another commentator says it was lower than that. He was like the Lord of the Manure Pile. Well, if that's what it means, can you see how venomous and hostile is the blasphemy that addresses the Son of God and says, you're the Lord of the manure pile. You're the prince of demons, and that's why you can cast them out. In other words, it takes a demon to know a demon, is what they were saying. Now, most people are not that blasphemous openly in their speech that they would accuse 
God to his face of being a demon. And yet there are many ways in which blasphemy comes from people in our day. They would be people who, if you would meet them, they might be nice folks. They wouldn't uh, say or openly claim to be hostile to Christianity. But you might test them by simply listening to them. Listen to the evidence of their telltale daily speech. And when you hear a person who habitually curses the name of God, I don't mean once in a great while when the hammer socks their thumb, but, but every day, frequently, habitually, God's name and cursing are on their lips. You know, there's something wrong there, and, and it's more than just being about ugly words that are shocking and hard to listen to. Because really, when a person is doing that, you say, you know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? They're speaking what's in their heart. And what they're speaking is an attack on God. When somebody is constantly linking the idea of God and damnation, perhaps what they're saying is, I resent the idea that a God could ever condemn me for something. And if it's a person who cannot say the name Jesus without making it an angry expletive, isn't he really voicing the same kind of hatred as these people who said, you're the prince of demons? It's shocking to hear the kind of blasphemy that is routine for people in this world. But, you know, there has to be a kind of pity about it, too, because cursing is really the language, most of the time, of lost souls. They blaspheme because they don't comprehend a higher mode of speech in which they could praise God, commune with God, enjoy the sweetness of who God is. They've not been spiritually reborn, and they've never learned the new language of praise to their Savior and King. All right, let's go to the second thing here that is in verses 17 through 23. And here, while it shifts gears, the subject is consistent, I believe, as Jesus tells about a contest between two biblical strong men. As I was thinking about this text, I don't know why it kept coming into my mind. When I thought of two strong men in a contest, for some reason, Japanese sumo wrestlers kept coming to my mind. You know, these huge men. 400, 600, 700 pounds of them banging into each other and trying to knock each other down. Well, Jesus was talking about two strong men in a contest here. But just before he did that, he reminded his listeners about how illogical was the claim that they had made, the idea that he was casting out demons as a prince of demons, that he was one of them. And he did stop, at least to politely inform them, that that wasn't logical. Why in the world would someone who was working for Satan destroy the works of Satan? That didn't make any sense. It was irrational. And yet I believe that Jesus knew, even as he spoke that challenge, that a hallmark of unbelief is that it always is illogical. It's disconnected. It's paradoxical. It's contradictory. That's its stock in trade. I studied philosophy in college. I'm not sure I recommend that as a major to anyone. I ended up regretting and wishing maybe I'd studied history instead, but I was too far committed to the major before I regretted it. 
And I realized that what I was initially drawn to was ancient philosophy, the philosophy of the Greeks and the the medieval philosophers who at least had a belief in God. But then I came to the 20th century and, and philosophy disgusted me because most of it was based on irrationalism, existentialism, meaninglessness, the declaration that that life is not coherent, that it's not unified, that truth does not flow from some divine source. And, And it was so schizophrenic that I could hardly stand to study it. And yet, that's the characteristic of unbelief, contradiction, paradox. And it will always be that way. Well, Jesus said, in fact, I don't drive out demons by the prince of demons. But notice his little expression, I do so by the finger of God. Now, this is an Old Testament expression that you could go and trace out where it comes from with a concordance, but I I won't do that right now. But I think it's so interesting what that expression says. In other words, God doesn't need a fist to drive out demons, does he? He doesn't need to pound the demon. He just needs his little finger, and the demon flees. The demon runs before the greater force that it knows can destroy it. You see, what Jesus is portraying here is a vast contest that unfolds on the stage of the entire universe. It's what we would call a cosmic conflict. The contestants, the, uh, I don't want to liken God to a sumo wrestler, so I think the, the image is bad. But if, but if they are sumo wrestlers, the combatants are God and Satan. An angel who rebelled against God, trying to wrestle from God what he can never have, equality with God. And that's what Satan's been doing ever since his first rebellion. This contest, this cosmic battle, actually was predicted, you know, in the first predictive prophecy of the entire Bible. This is something you should know. If I say the first predictive prophecy of the Bible, I would hope that a verse has already sprung into some minds. It was very early, so that tells you it's in what book? Genesis. It was rather early in Genesis, not chapter 1 or not 2, but chapter 3. Genesis 3.15 has the scene of God condemning Satan, who has beguiled the man and woman to sin in that great epic fall, and he's pronouncing a sentence upon Satan and says this, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, people often talk about how prophecy in the Bible helps them to believe in the unity of the Bible, that something could be predicted a long time ago and then come true centuries later in totally different books. Isaiah 53 is a marvelous example, as many of you know. I would say to you, if I just had Genesis 3.15 and the Gospels, I would say, wow, what a marvel is the Bible. What a marvelous prediction. As the offspring of the woman, Jesus, at his cross and in his resurrection, crushed the head of Satan and was wounded at his heel as he did it. That prophecy was made centuries before Jesus was born in this world. And so here Jesus is taking up this image of the strong man, fully armed, who's guarding his house, or really maybe a better illustration of the word than house might be castle, his stronghold, where he keeps his possessions and his slaves. 
Satan is that strong man that Jesus is talking about in verse 21. Jesus himself is the stronger man who comes to attack and sack and pillage the possessions of this first strong man. Now, people couldn't understand that when he first spoke this, but in light of what he later did at the cross, they did understand it. Colossians 2.15, you heard this morning as an assurance word from Paul's letters. There it states that the whole errand that Christ accomplished in the cross was this. Paul said, he disarmed powers and authorities. He made a spectacle out of them, triumphing over them in the cross. The death of Jesus did that, you see. It looked like it was a humiliation, a loss, a defeat. It looked like he went down into the pit of hell, which he did on the, on the cross itself. But all that appearance changed when he burst out of the tomb on Easter morning. And he not only emerged himself, but the Scripture says he led out of the prison of death all those who belonged to him, all those whose true faith would lie and reside in him. You can say that on Easter morning, Genesis 3.15 was fulfilled as Jesus did a dance on the old serpent's head. Now, he's still a predator. He still works against souls. He still controls many people. I'm amazed to know how Satan works in the whole realm of academia and the intelligentsia of the world today. Now, academia is a good place. Don't hear me suddenly becoming anti-intellectual or telling you, don't go get a PhD, that's a bad thing to do, or anything of that kind. But it is interesting how the deceits of Satan come into the higher echelons of education and our university professors and so on, and exalt the reason and the learning of men. And you know what? I think demons do some of their best service when they have a Ph.D. after their names. You know, when you have that, you can teach at a Christian college. You can sign your name on a, on a, a document that says, I accept the inerrancy and authority of the Bible. And then you can go into the classroom and take the Bible apart and leave it in pieces on the classroom floor and send freshman students out reeling without comprehending how is it that everything I've ever been taught, according to this exalted man with his Ph.D., he's written the books, is wrong. Satan loves to work in academia. He loves to work in pulpits where he can erect through some preacher with all the credentials a vision of something that looks like or vaguely sounds like Christianity that has a, a, you know, a warp and woof of morality about it and it sounds good and it sounds humanitarian and it's like Christianity, but it isn't Christianity because nowhere does it contain the blood of Christ or the grace of God in his divine decrees. Satan does real well with people who have initials after their names. But even though he works in hard ways, destructive ways today. His doom is sure. One little word from God is going to fell him. He will fall. Read Revelation 19 and 20. He will be condemned to the pit and all his works with him. Well, we've seen a couple things here then. First, that Christ can loosen a human tongue to serve its real purpose of praise and thanksgiving. Secondly, 
that there is this titanic contest of the ages between two strong men, and Jesus proved to be the stronger one at the cross who raided the prison house of Satan. Now, thirdly, we come to the climactic one, and it's maybe the part of this text that's hardest to understand, but Jesus wove an image for us here, and I'd have you just stay with me for a minute. Verses 23 to 26, I'm going to describe what they say in this summary. If you are not a dwelling place for Christ, then you are an empty house open to any tenant who comes along. If you are not a dwelling house for Christ, you are an empty house open to any tenant who comes along. That's what Jesus weaves here in this story of houses, either occupied by the Spirit of Christ or occupied by evil spirits. Now, first he says, look, he who isn't with me is against me. There isn't any neutrality here. There's no neutral ground in this. I'm being very black and white. People don't like black and white. They always want to say, oh, there must be some shade of gray. No shade of gray possible when Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me, period. Now, I really believe there are many professing Christians who don't believe this is true. If they would think of their life as a house that they live in, they would say, well, I guess I've actually got two houses. And I, usually they don't have this kind of honesty, but, but this is what actually is the case about them. They have a house that they live in during the week, and that house is occupied by many spirits, spirits of this world, spirits that say, make money, produce wealth, be successful, go for material things, have pleasures, abuse people if you need to to get what you want, live for self. Do all these, See, all these different spirits impel them, and they live in this house where professing Christians, many of them, dwell six days of the week. And then once in a while, if they're not too busy doing something one of those spirits has told them to do on Sunday, they show up at their weekend house. The cabin in the woods, you know, where you retreat and you go, oh, well, that's God's house. I'm going to go there. And I'll pay my acknowledgement to God. I'll live in his house for a few hours at least. And then I'll come away and say, hallelujah, I'm a Christian. And I'll go back and live in the house that's inhabited by all the spirits of all the things of this world. People are kidding themselves. J.C. Ryle, a believer in an earlier generation, said, Let it be our settled determination that we will serve Christ with all our hearts if we serve him at all. Now, Jesus gave an odd picture here in Luke 11, 24 and following when he described a house where a demon dwelt and then it left. You might ask yourself, why did it leave? Well, many think the implication is that somehow the man got morality, and he said, hey, I'm going to clean this place up. I don't like the mess this demon is making. I'm going to start living by the Ten Commandments. I'm going to start being more faithful to my wife. I went to the marriage conference, and and God shook me, so I'm going to be a better husband, and I'm going to fix it up and do the home remodel that makes the house I live in a better house, and somehow the demon's gone, and it's empty for a while. Let me tell you one of the big lessons I learned in junior high school. We don't even have junior high schools anymore. They're now middle schools, I guess. But it was ninth grade science, Mr. Schmidt, good old Mr. Schmidt. One of the principles he taught was nature abhors a vacuum. If something is truly empty, 
many other things will try to fill it up. You know, a, a true vacuum, you who are schooled in science know that it's hard to maintain a vacuum. Very hard to keep something entirely empty because things will fill it. That's what Jesus is saying. If you have an empty house that you've cleaned up by morality, it looks good, it's got new paint on the shutters, new carpet on the floor, but guess what it doesn't have? A permanent, powerful, transformational occupant. And Jesus is saying, you've got to do more than sweep the floor, paint the walls, and clean up the house. You need an occupant who will rule that place as its Lord If you don't have that, every squatter in the world is going to come along and find a residence. I remember how shocked I was probably 20 years ago now when I first visited the campus of Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. I used to have to go there every now and then. And uh, boy, I'd heard of this place. I knew it was one of the great medical institutions of the world. And so you would think of it as kind of a golden city on a hill or something. Well, you medical people and many of you have gone there no differently. Within blocks of Johns Hopkins Hospital, you don't want to be walking around on the sidewalks. I remember whole blocks, block after block of row houses with no glass in any of the windows. And I would think, why didn't somebody bulldoze those things a long time ago? Empty places where people once lived. Nobody lived now except maybe drug lords or Homeless folks who built campfires in the dining room or something. Jesus is telling us that if Christ does not dwell in the house of your everyday life, not your weekend life, your everyday life, watch out. You've got an empty tenement that any squatter can come and move in and wreak any havoc that he chooses to work in that place. Ladies and gentlemen, the Scripture's saying that Jesus is the stronger man. He's won the right to be Lord. He is triumphant over Satan in the end and will be, no question. And even as he occupies you now, he gave us a promise like John 7.38 that he who believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within him. Your life is going to be full of refreshment and nourishment, and that which is needed for you to truly live. And as you bow before him and obey him and walk with him, his desire and his powerful ability is that you would grow in his grace until every room and every closet and every cupboard of your being is infused by him. A man named Alexander McLaren said this, it is the incarnate Christ The divine Christ, the crucified Christ, the ascended Christ, the indwelling Christ, who will so fill us that there will be no aching voids left in us to invite the return of the spiritual tyrants. And then McLaren ended with this line. He said, with Jesus inside, they must stay outside. He wants your life to be indwelt by his glorious, powerful, nourishing presence. He will not share joint tenancy with any old spirit that comes along to squat there. He has called for you to be all one thing or else you will be all the other. 
but His indwelling Spirit will make all the difference and will transform you and change you, beginning now and culminating in the great goal of His eternity. I pray you know what this means. I pray you are not someone who thinks you can occupy two different houses inhabited by two different spirits. For if you are not with Christ, you're against him. Our Father, we pray that you might convict us about what it means to live in a house that's open to all the spirits of this world to rule it. We know people like this. There are probably people in the sound of my voice for whom this is a reality. I pray that that one might come to you in a new repentance they have never known before and fling open the front door and say, Lord Jesus, come and reign here. Live here. Dwell here. Rule here. I pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.